Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, the Democratic Party is unified in totality and much earlier than I think it, we might have thought a couple of months ago. So obviously uh, the pandemic and the economic and health impacts are the big story this week as they were last week and will continue to be maybe for years. Uh, but I'll talk about politics for a minute. So uh, Bernie Sanders uh, has endorsed Joe Biden in a very warm way. Uh, he's beginning to do interviews and reach out to his supporters on his behalf. Elizabeth Warren, I'm recording this on Wednesday, uh, endorsed Joe Biden today. And then former President Obama put out that, I thought, fairly remarkable video yesterday talking about his support for his former vice president. So you know, I think it is important in that, um, you know, Joe Biden and his campaign, as I've talked on this program before, still have a lot of work to do to make sure all those that supported, you know, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders feel like they have a home, that they're welcomed. Joe Biden is, has made some policy announcements around, you know, education, reducing the eligibility age for Medicare, um, which I think will will help. But, you know, a lot of it is also going to just be smart political work, uh, phone calls and reaching out to people and having conversations to make sure that Bernie Sanders political supporters and organizers on the ground, uh, same thing with, with anybody else who's not fully there yet, feels like they're being listened to and that they have a home. But we're on our path here, I think, to unity. And that matters. Yes, it matters in terms of the final vote total. You know, what percentage of the Democratic vote is Joe Biden getting? I'd, I'd love to see it, you know, closer to 94, 95 than, than 89 or 90. But it also, you know, you look at, you know, Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, you go on and on and on about the surrogates. And, you know, particularly if we're going to be in mostly virtual campaign world, maybe for the rest of the year, but certainly for a couple more months, a lot of opportunities to have people out there making the case. And you compare that to Trump. I mean, he's got his, you know, crew of goofballs and grifters, you know, and, and he doesn't even like anybody else speaking for him but him. So I think we've got a lot of weaponry out there that can be incredibly powerful to reach out to swing voters and folks we want to see um, register to vote and people we concern may not vote at all. So um, I, I hope we see really smart surgical use of these surrogates, you know, in, in very niche ways, also more wholesale ways. But I'm very excited about that. So I, I think a really important week in terms of the, the campaign. You know, we continue to be reminded uh, every day why this election is so important. You know, Trump continues to do a disastrous job of, of leadership in the decisions he's making, in the lies he tells, and the blame game that he's involved in. You know, I assume he's uh, getting a lot of advice that these Soviet-style multi-hour press conferences are doing him a lot more harm than good. I know they're doing the country a lot more harm than good. So we'll see if there's any adjustment there. But, you know, we obviously... Um, are thinking of everybody out there who's lost a loved one or as someone who's sick. So many people out there also have lost jobs, have hours cut, small businesses who are on the precipice of shuttering. So we all hope that, you know, we can um, turn the corner here uh, when it's safe to do so. But I'm sure the thing that we all, you know, keeps us up at night is we just don't have any faith or confidence in our national government. And I thought that was one of the more powerful parts of Barack Obama's video he put out for Joe Biden is the compassion, the looking out for our neighbors, the decisions we make at the local level, as important as they are, you still need all that in our national government. Uh, and we're reminded how important it is to have a good, competent, skilled, aggressive, compassionate government. And I do think that increasingly will be the question that voters are going to really lock in on as they think about their vote this November is, who can I trust to dig us out of an economic hole that's going to take years to dig out of? 
Who can I trust to make sure the vaccine when it comes is deployed in the right way? Who can I trust to prepare for the next pandemic? So uh, I think Joe Biden has unique strengths in all those regards, given his background uh, helping with Ebola and H1N1, um, leading the implementation of the Recovery Act. So uh, I think he is the antidote in many ways to um, Trump's mishandling of this crisis. And so I think that is increasingly, as you think about this election, I, you know, I went through one in, in 2008 where a financial crisis became the dominant issue, by the end, really the only issue. Now we've got one we know that was really, you know, by August or September, that's where that got locked in. You know, here we are in the middle of April and we know between now and November, that is going to be the question. And it doesn't mean other issues aren't important, but I think as Joe Biden thinks about the campaign he's going to run both in terms of the policies they put forward, the media that they're going to run, the interviews, but also utilizing all these surrogates. I think, you know, people always believe what others say about you more than what you say about yourself. So I think Joe Biden's got the ability to leverage a lot of people that have trust with the American people to speak to his unique capabilities and ability to lead America through uh, this really unprecedented period. We had an election in Wisconsin this week for Supreme Court justice, a Democrat won with a big, big win. And, you know, really uh, did that despite, you know, Republicans and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court really handling the election in an irresponsible and dangerous way, forcing people to risk their lives to vote and not extending absentee deadlines, but still a remarkable outcome. Now, I wouldn't get too overconfident in terms of what that means for November because Trump wasn't on the ballot. And when Trump's on the ballot in a state like Wisconsin, you're just going to see, as, as you know, I'm like, uh, I mention this almost every week, you know, he's going to produce outrageously high turnout. But that being said, you look at the performance of our judicial candidate there in some blue collar areas that had swung uh, to Trump, uh, margins in suburban areas, uh, turnout was very strong in Milwaukee, some pretty positive signs there. My guess is one of the reasons Trump's acting so erratically is he sees that result and doesn't like what it means for November. Now, I think Wisconsin's going to be extraordinarily close almost no matter what happens between now and November. But um, it shows what's possible for us there. And, and I think we can put together uh, a winning coalition. And the other thing I mentioned is, is Trump sort of historically irresponsibly uh, maligning early vote, even though he himself is an absentee ballot voter. He's full of shit on that, uh, as he is most things. But for those of you out there, we obviously want to make sure everybody in every state uh, should have the opportunity to vote by mail, uh, particularly if we're in a situation where people don't feel safe going to the polls. That's going to be a bigger fight than it should be. Uh, but speaking narrowly about the presidential election, and you know we care about local elections, congressional elections, but the presidential election, you know the six core battleground states: Arizona, uh, North Carolina, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida all allow no excuse absentee voting. Some have better procedures than others. Uh, but a good campaign can make sure that everybody who wants to avail themselves of that can do that. So that, from a presidential campaign standpoint, we're going to have vote by nail where we need it. Uh, now, if the battleground map were to expand uh, into Georgia, into Ohio, into Iowa, you know, those are all states as well. You know, I, I know having you know run presidential campaigns, Ohio and Iowa both you know, pretty big early vote and vote by mail states. So, you know, as it relates narrowly to the pursuit of 270 electoral votes, we're going to, I think, be able to execute the election we need to uh, to win under any circumstance. I'm really excited for my guest today, Austin Goolsby. Many of you know Austin. He uh, is now teaching um, economics at the University of Chicago, um, returning 
there. He had done that uh, at a prior point in his life. But he served as uh, Barack Obama's chief economic advisor, actually in his U.S. Senate race in 2004, where I had the pleasure to, to meet Austin, uh, then served as our economic advisor in the 2008 presidential election, a role that became increasingly important as the financial crisis deepened. And, and he was really such a critical part of our response, both from a policy standpoint and, and also how we're communicating our response. Uh, then served on the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House for President Obama, eventually becoming the chairman of that body before returning to the University of Chicago. So I, I wanted to have Austin on today just to have a broader conversation about the economy. Uh, before we get into any politics of it, really pick his brain about where he sees the economy now, certain sectors and industries that he's most concerned about, what he's seeing globally, um, his analysis of the CARES Act, uh, what was uh, smart about that, where it was lacking, what we need to do next from a federal standpoint. So I think Austin's going to give us a really good overview of where he sees the economy and, and some of the challenges and opportunities moving forward. And I'll also ask him to talk about the presidential election, because again, he was by our side, by Barack Obama's side in 2008. So his sense of how Joe Biden ought to be handling this, uh, both from a political standpoint and from a policy standpoint. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Austin Goolsby. Austin Goolsby, it's great to be with you. David, great to talk to you. So I want to start, Austin, from your standpoint, as you, as you look at the economic catastrophe we're uh, beginning to enter into, what are the sectors or industries you think are going to have the hardest time bouncing back? Not just you know in the near term, but over the near and medium term. Well, look, catastrophe, that's your word. That's the right word. There's never been anything like this. It's the worst three and a half weeks in the history of the American job market. And we were together for the, for the great recession and the financial crisis, which seemed like about the scariest thing that, that anybody had been through ever. And this is a lot worse than that. I think who's going to have the hardest time coming out of it, conditional on we get some handle on the spreading rate of the virus. Let's say we do that, but we don't have a vaccine then for sure it's going to be anything that involves mass numbers of people. So big crowds is probably going to have a very hard hit on restaurants and bars, big sporting events, cruise lines, travel, and stuff like that are going to have a hard time. And depending how long this goes, it could morph into something much more sinister if businesses run out of money and they start liquidating so that when people crawl out from underneath these rocks and we, you know, we're, we have terrible tans and we're like, we want to go back to the burger place. If the burger place can't reopen because they ran out of money or they got evicted or, or blah, blah, blah. Then I think you could see this spread into industries where it's not naturally, the fundamentals aren't going against them the way they are in the cruise line business but the kind of the financial goes against them. And the, in a way, this virus hit us in our weak spot. And by, and by that, I mean the rich economies of the world, and especially the United States, is dominated, they are dominated by services, okay? And the very face-to-face -face services that are normally more recession-proof than say agriculture or mining or manufacturing, um, those are exactly the things that this virus 
goes right after it. And everyone, if, if we go on the lockdown and pull back, it's exactly services that are, that are hammered. And why, as this thing first started breaking, I wrote this piece in the New York Times that said, hey, wait a second, if we get a health outbreak in the U.S. that's as big as what they had in China, it's going to be a lot worse for our economy than it was for China's because China is not as dominated by those, by those services as we are. Yeah, you were very prescient. I remember reading that piece. So let's, um, it's hard to be an optimist, but um, let's, let's say the most optimistic scenario happens. We begin to slowly reopen uh, and we don't have the virus come back in a significant way right away. We don't have a real large or at all uh, outbreak uh, in the fall. We actually do get a vaccine in 2021. So all of those things are unlikely to happen, but let's say they all happen. Talk about, though, how long it's going to take, with the caveat that there are some sectors that may not come back ever to full strength. How long and hard is this work going to be to get to the point where we say, okay, we finally dug out of the hole? And why is that? Well, I guess I think, I guess I am a little optimistic already in that if you look at other countries like South Korea, like Taiwan, Iceland, New Zealand, there's some different places where they've gotten out of lockdown and their economies are coming back. So you don't need a vaccine. It would be great if you had one, but you don't need a vaccine to at least start repairing the damage. And there are there are models of like, get on this road and there it, it's not a dead end. The times that make me pessimistic are it just really doesn't seem like the White House and the federal response is learning anything from these models of success. And, and, I, and I don't understand that. Okay, so the basic idea is if you can't have a vaccine or a treatment, then you have to slow the rate of spread of the virus through lots and lots of testing. So why are we not massively mobilizing to have much more testing so that the only people who have to go into lockdown are the people who are infected. If we, let's say, got onto a more like a South Korea path, if we could do that in short order, I don't think it would be, it would still be very hard and will be very hard to get back literally to the spot where we were before this began. But it wouldn't be that hard to have a strong rebound, at least. So, you know, if we went down 80 and then up 50, you're still minus 30 for the total, but going up 50 would, be, would feel a lot better than, than where we are now. Right. Your optimism is in part, you know, you're looking at South Korea. To your point, though, um, if we're not going to do the same sort of testing, it doesn't appear like we're going to, at least not universally, then we're just going to be, we may not have the same pace and outcomes that they're having, right, as they begin to dig out. Yeah. Look, and that's, that's and so now, now you're depressing me again, uh, because the longer we go, then it's really just a thing that we have to hope that the virus kind of peters out on its own. And look, maybe it will. I mean, it doesn't seem like it is, but maybe it will. Maybe the summer will be better. Maybe it won't come back in the fall. If the longer that goes, the longer we go without being able to get out of lockdown, the harder it's going to be to claw back. And 
there are some industries that will literally be changed forever, as you said, and it's kind of hard to for me to see how something like cruise lines, amusement parks, even you know going to the Bears game, it's hard to see how industries like that um, are going to just go back to re return to normal when there's not a vaccine. But this financial connection that the point of the CARES Act and, and a major component of what the government is trying to do has got to be helping people not to get evicted, not to have their gas cut off, not to be unable to put food on the table and on the small business side, not to go broke so that they have to liquidate so that when we get out the back end, they can't, they can't restart. If we let that financial part happen, then, then I'm quite nervous that it's not just a long, horrible slog. It literally cannot be done. I mean, they, they'll, be, they'll be extinct, and then you know, we'll be trying to invent some new commercial species which maybe it will work, but that will just be so much harder than it has to be that I don't understand why we're not trying to go down one of the successful routes. Right. Well, um, it is the most perplexing thing among many. So let's talk about the CARES Act. Uh, as you as you have dug into that, what about that is smart and gives you confidence that it will uh, help mitigate against the, the worst downside? Where were there some missed opportunities? And then I'd really like to talk to you. And, you know, this is something you have unique experience in having been, um, you know, part of the crisis response team uh, back in, in 08 and 09 and 10. What needs to happen next? Okay. There's a, lot, there's a lot going on there. So let's start with the CARES Act. I mean, my first thing that I say to everyone, and it's not just me who, who says this, I think almost all the economists are in agreement with the public health people that the number one rule of virus economics is that you have to slow, you have to control the virus before you can do anything on the economics. The greatest form of stimulus is anything that slows the rate of spread of that virus, because that's the thing that, that put the economy in lockdown. It's not government orders that put the economy in lockdown. And that's where it feels like the president is confused that he's like, oh, I want to just go back out and order everyone to go back to work and to go back to doing what they were doing. And that won't work because the reason that people are pulling back is out of fear. It's not out of a government order. In the CARES Act, I feel like they're a, a major missed opportunity or uh, Maybe that opportunity is the wrong word. I cannot understand why the absolutely first thing that Congress is talking about is not how do we have a mass mobilization effort to do much more testing and get control on the spread of the virus. If we had $2 trillion to spend on helping the economy from collapse, how do we not spend 10x what we have spent so far on the healthcare part of the crisis. A, it saves lives, and B, it's the best thing for the economy. Now, that said, I like that the CARES Act, I like all the parts of the CARES Act that are about 
let's call it rescue and relief. And where I start to get a little concerned are the parts that are more conventional stimulus and the parts that are not governed well, where there's not clear accountability. Those ones make me nervous, rooted in, in our experience with the financial crisis 2008 and nine. So the checks that go out to everybody, okay, fine. I would not necessarily... If you waved a magic wand, you wouldn't necessarily think that, you know, Donald Trump Jr. needs a $1,200 check. But if the easy way to get the money out the door as quickly as possible is to send it to everyone, then that's fine. That we did a massive increase in, in relief through the unemployment insurance system. Again, some countries have taken an approach which was let's pay the companies to keep them on the payroll rather than pay the, the workers once they lose their jobs. But I think there was a legitimate, uh, and, and I guess I'm more sympathetic with that pay them to keep them on the payroll approach, but there were a number of smart people who said, we have a UI system in place, and this is how we can get the money out the door in a, in a rapid uh, basis in a way that we might not be able to if we do it a different way. So... I still think that that can work if they ramp up the administrative uh, assistance, because as you can see in the numbers, every single state in America has their own employment insurance system massively overloaded and is totally unable to process the claims. They, they're 10 acts bigger than the biggest week ever. Um, and so I think that's kind of a mess. Third category, there's four categories in the CARES Act. Checks to people, unemployment insurance. So far, I think you're doing pretty well helping people to, to weather through this. Third, we get to small business. Now, I think it's a good idea to try to provide credit to small business to make it a grant if they'll keep the workers on. That's what it, it tried to do. But here we start to get into this complication of, of accountability, let's call it. They allocated $350 billion. They made it first come, first serve. And then they piped it through banks. And all of the banks are saying, if you weren't already a customer with us, we're not interested. We don't even want to give you a loan. So I think we're going to look back and find out that most all of the money that was intended to go to hard-hit small businesses went to the smallish and medium-sized-ish businesses who already had lines of credit and good relationships with a bank. And that's what used up all the money. And the local restaurant that it was designed to prevent them from having to close, I, I think most of them are going to close anyway. That seems like more than a small problem. Yeah, that's more than a small problem. That is potential. We don't we don't fully know. Maybe my fears in that will not come true. Um, but I got to say, I'm I'm quite nervous about that, and it bleeds into that fourth category where I'm very very nervous, which is money for big business. And there are five hundred billion dollars or more that includes tax cuts. There's tax incentives to try to get. Uh, retailers and restaurants to expand their buy more structures and expand. There's 170 billion of tax cuts for 
personal income tax cuts to, to real estate tycoons, and there's lending to big business without any clear lines of who gets the money or what are they going to be required to do to get the money. And the president at the signing statement said he doesn't believe that he has to share any information with an inspector general, and he rejects any accountability. And I think this is a this is a major this is a major problem. It's not just a major problem in terms of of good government. It's a major problem in terms of the is the policy going to be credible? Are people going to say yes, this rescue was worth it? Had, we spent two trillion dollars. If we come out the other side of this thing and find out we gave $500 billion to big businesses who already got a $2 trillion corporate tax cut a couple of years ago. And the mom and pop stores that we rely on in our communities never got hardly anything and they all closed down. And a bunch of high income people got tax cuts. I think people are going to rightfully be outraged. And that informs us kind of from the 2008 crisis. If you're going to have demands on companies, if, if you're going to say, we are going to save your bacon if you do X, Y, and Z, the conditions need to come before they get the money, not after they get the money. And so when the Bush people give money to the banks in TARP, there are very few conditions. And then we, the Obama administration, come in and we're like, we need your help, banks, to prevent foreclosure. We want you to make loans to small business. And the banks say almost literally, hey, we have a contract. It doesn't say we have to do that. We already have the money. So if you want us to do that, give us some incentive and pay us to do it. And the public is furious. If you remember, they're like, why are we giving these people bonuses when we just saved their bacon with $800 billion? And and it's true, but there's nothing we could do because the conditions were not in there beforehand. So that's why I say I'm really nervous about that part of the CARES Act because it's like they're designing it that Secretary Mnuchin is going to pick some companies that he wants, that he thinks deserve bailouts. The president's getting up and speculating that casinos should be bailed out and that we should give money to cruise lines if they'll, if they'll put their headquarters back in the United States instead of in Liberia or wherever they are now. Right. And I think that's, a, that's potentially a, a big mess and a big flashpoint. I wish they would go back to the individual base. Yeah, no. So let's, uh, in terms of what Washington needs to do next, I want to start with the accountability. So obviously you've got people hurting out there, um, we've got to get assistance to people as quickly as we can, small businesses, workers, families. But on the other hand, the way I think about this is I wouldn't give him a dime uh, until this accountability is fixed. I think that's, I agree with you. I 100% agree with you. Look, we need relief. And, and, and my, my thing always starts from the same two priorities. Number one priority is everything that there is to control the rate of spread of the virus. And then number two priority is people can't starve, people don't get evicted, people don't have their gas shut off. You know, that's the second priority. Okay, then third, we get to 
trying to prevent long-term damage to our businesses, if he will not, if he, the president, will not accept accountability, I don't see how you can shovel money to businesses. I mean, I, I just, I don't see how you can look at this administration's behavior over the last three and a half years and have any confidence that they have credibility when they say, no, no, it's going to be objective. We're not going to, we're not going to do anything political with the money. We're not going to do anything untoward and self-serving or self-dealing with the money. You, you just can't say that. You, you know that there's a high chance that they will do that. exactly that. Okay. So maybe let's live in a fantasy world for a minute, sadly. So let's A, assume that the Democrats have the strong enough spine to insist that we're not even going to talk to you about the next stage of any help until we fix the accountability. And let's say we get that fixed. What needs to happen next? Sort of CARES Act part two. What you now some of this may be based on your critique of what was good or what wasn't so good in the initial pack, but what's next? Look, I think next has to include lots, lots more money for tests, fighting virus, expanding capacity. I think the states and cities are going to be devastated. Look, it's just a matter of time. The only reason we haven't seen it yet is the data all come out with a lag. And this happened in 2008 when we met, you know, President Obama was elected. We meet in December and the economists say, oh my God, you have no idea what's about to come. You know, it's the data come out with one to three months lag and when they come out, they're going to show the worst recession uh, of all times. And this is going to be worse than that. The states and a lot of cities have forced balanced budget amendments. And so when they go into recessions or downturns, they're forced to make it worse by they have to go raise taxes or cut spending in the face of the downturn to try to balance their budgets. And so I think the next act has got to help the cities and states in some way. Otherwise, that's going to just magnify the degree of this downturn. Um, so I think that's got to be in there. Well, sadly, though, both in terms of more money for more tests and helping the states, I, I don't see the Trump administration necessarily <laughs> signing up for that. Oh, God. You, I, I really, I desperately hope you're wrong about that, David, because if we don't have that, I don't know what, I, I don't think they, they, I don't think that the critics of those approaches quite understand that if the states get on this negative spiral, this happened in 2009, big hit to negative on GDP then the states have to raise their sales taxes in the face of that, which leads to an even bigger hit on GDP. And the thing spirals in that negative way. You've got to stop that spiral. When I saw Art Laffer was advising the president and Art Laffer and Steve Moore wrote an op-ed saying that the answer was to cut the salaries of workers so that they become cheap to put a tax on charities and nonprofits to discourage people from going into non-productive work and to use the money for corporate tax cuts because that's how you would increase employment, my head is about to explode because it's like, what are you talking about? We're facing the biggest downturn possibly ever 
certainly in our lifetimes, maybe bigger than the depression. And we've got to get out of it. And that's the, that's the totally wrong thing to do to be like, ah, oh, let's cut everyone's salaries and try to make this thing revenue neutral in the short run and give corporate tax cuts um, and hope that this, that these magic beanstalk boons are going to grow um, for the first time ever. We, I know we've promised you these magic beanstalk beans every time we cut tra- taxes by $2 trillion, but this time we mean it. Right. No, that's insanity. So you mentioned, okay, round two, testing, assistance, estate, and local. Um, but um, it seems like, you know, based on your critique of the assistance that's aimed at small business, it's not going as deep as we need. Uh, and also, you know, th- eventually the assistance to individual workers and families runs out. What's going to have to be done for individuals and businesses in this round two? And ideally, that would be based on a lot of data. But to your point, we may not have that in to make those informed decisions. Yeah, I think we might not have it in to make those informed decisions, in which case we just we're going to need more money to, to give them relief. I, I, I hope that they can also be creative about things like forbearance, like moratoria on evictions or, or you know, having your utilities cut off and, and stuff like that. But they're going to need more money because make no doubt about it. This isn't stimulus. The CARES Act, they might have called a stimulus. It's not a stimulus, okay? It's just relief. We're, we're almost literally burning money to stay warm while the heat is out. And that does work, but it only works as long as you keep shoveling money in to keep burning. And that's why I keep going back to the testing. The only way to get the heat back working is to get us out of lockdown and we don't get out of lockdown from just the president forming a commission of his children and his administration saying, oh, we should go out of lockdown. That's not why we're in lockdown. We're in lockdown because people are afraid that the virus is spreading. So you have to control the spread of the virus to get out of lockdown. That is how you get the heater back working. Until the heater is working, we have to keep coming up with money to keep people warm so they don't freeze to death. And I think that's going to mean a lot more for small business. I think they're going to have to be a lot more creative about the financial institutions that they go through to get the money to small businesses. It can't just go through banks who are going to rely on their existing, pre-existing relationships because that's going to it, look, it's going to help some businesses, but it's going to tend to help the businesses that already, um, not that they don't need the help, because everybody needs help, but they aren't the most desperate for help. Right. To reach those guys, we got to go through, I don't know if it's payroll services or if it's the, the, the credit card merchants or fintech or, or what have you. Right. So, you know, Trump and his administration the counts here against them are so massive, right? Uh, but one of, I think, um, the most profound mistakes they're making is they're suggesting basically we're just on hold, right? So basically we're just going through a probationary period and once we get the all clear, the economy will bounce back the way it was. Your, I think, analysis uh, is really smart. It says, listen, until we're doing enough testing and until ultimately, and that's the bridge to a vaccine, you know, people are going to be cautious, whether that's businesses or families. But I'd like to talk to you about the other part of this, which is 
you know, the way Trump talks about this is, hey, we're doing some smart things in Washington, the CARES Act, we're tiding people over, and then everything snaps back. But, you know, it's not like it's making people whole. It's not making businesses whole. <laughs> it's not making our states whole. It's not making workers whole. So from a consumer confidence standpoint, even if people do return to jobs or they get their hours restored, talk about that psychology, which is not just based on testing and vaccine, which is just people are economically more precarious. And that has profound impacts on an economy that's largely centered on you know, consumer spending and services you talked about. Yeah, that's a super important point, and I haven't thought it. I haven't thought all of that through uh, the the subtleties. I think you you might very well be right that we normally think of the the consumer as being a big driver of the economy. And before there ever was the coronavirus scare, the U.S. economy had kind of split into two, where manufacturing was sort of already in a recession. Um, but the consumer was supremely confident in consumer spending, very robust, and that was really continuing to drive the expansion. If this thing has scared consumers as much as it feels like it has, even if we get good news on that part, I wonder if consumer confidence or consumer spending is going to be at all going back to the levels it was before. Now, I do think the president is right that if you could get out, there will be some pent-up demand rebound of people saying, oh, you know, I've been wanting, I've been craving a donut, you know, whatever it is. And when they get out, with the kind of crash that we're facing for this quarter, it just like you know, it's you don't you don't get hurt jumping out of the window of the basement. You know, if you if you're down that far, you don't have to come back that much, and it looks like a uh, like a strong rebound. The deeper question of how long will it take to get back to where we were, let's say in January, I think the fact that so many people have so little cushion in their personal savings means it could be a very long time. You know, the people can are, are having to do with less. And in a lot of cases, because they have no paychecks, they're having to take risks with their health or their family's health that are really scary. You know, it's like they would like to not go out, but they don't have that choice because that's the only way to, to bring money in. Right, right. So let's turn to uh, the campaign for a minute, Austin. So you are known as the chair and member of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, one of the most fluent economists who can talk, uh, you know, to 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 Americans in a way they can understand about the economy. But you spent um, some time um, in two thousand and eight as our senior economic advisor. So um, you know, when when you started that journey with us, and you obviously had a relationship with Barack Obama that went back to his U.S. Senate race. We, we didn't know we were going to be heading into the abyss. So you have uh, firsthand experience helping a nominee in their campaign navigate both policy and politics around an economic crisis. We are now undoubtedly in an economic crisis. I think the central question for most people uh, this fall from a voting perspective will be who can they trust to dig us out from that? So, uh, you know, if you look at the Biden campaign, um, uh, 
from both a policy standpoint and I guess from a politics and narrative standpoint, what's your observations about the best path forward for them? You know, based a little bit on what you're seeing now, but also, you know, your very unique experience back in 08. Well, as you know, David, I love the vice president. I loved working with him. He, he swore me in uh, when, I, when I was confirmed by the Senate. And, and fundamentally, if you're asking political and messaging advice from me, I'm just a policy guy. I mean, I have a PhD in economics, so what is oh, it? Don't ask me. But I do believe that the fundamental human decency of the vice president is – is both true to life. He really is that decent of a guy. And I think America recognizes that. And at a moment like this, that fundamental hum- human humanity about him is very appealing. And I've been pretty impressed with so far, some of the statements, let's call it that, they, that they've put out that early on, maybe because, he, he's so close with Ron Klain, who's a guy that in our uh, in the Obama administration they put in charge of responding to the Ebola uh, near pandemic. They've been out front that the health side and slowing the viruses is the one critical thing that has to happen first. And I've been impressed too, and and I guess you know to the extent that I could encourage them. I would encourage them always to have the individual focus, focus on the individual, the workers, the people, the consumers, as that's the tip of the spear. That's where the rubber is hitting the road is for everyday people. And $500 billion of tax cuts and loans for big businesses with the added proviso that there's not even any accountability checks on it, that to me feels like a devastating critique of, of the approach of the Trump administration and a clear differentiator of what would Joe Biden do to try to fix the economy and the economic crisis that he will be inheriting if, if he wins the presidency. That feels like not a bad place to start. You know what I mean? Well, you know, so in your, I want to dig in a little bit more on that in a different way in a minute, but so your view would be, you know, his empathy, his personal characteristics, where he puts the focus on workers as opposed to Wall Street, that that probably, I mean, I'm not suggesting that the policy responses and his ideas for different sectors aren't important, but at a top line, those, you know, kind of his character, his critique, uh, where he's going to apply his time is more important than the individual, you know, policy on, on a white paper. I very much feel that way. Um, now, y- you remember 2008, we were going all through 2007 and had a number of priorities. We had a lot of white papers, a very policy oriented, both primary and going into the general. And then the economic crisis began. And A, it was testament to Barack Obama that he pivoted immediately. He recognized whatever priorities you had before, this is now the priority. And so he would go and people say, what's your priority? Is it, is it energy independence? Is it increasing middle-class incomes? Is it re-regulating financial? What, like, what is, 
it was to avoid a, the next Great Depression. That's what it had to be once the crisis began. So at that point, the white papers kind of don't, they don't have the same cachet. Not that they ever had any cachet, but in some sense, who cares? Who cares what the exact white paper version, what your phase out rate would be in the CARES Act loans of you know, what share need to be repaid? People want to know, A, do you get it? B, do you have some ideas? C, they want to see how you deal with the crisis and what kind of people do you surround yourself with and how do you respond to pressure? Because all of those things are what you're going to have to do as president. And Barack Obama, I won't say it got him elected because I think he would have been a very strong candidate had there never even been a financial crisis. But one contributor to his getting elected was everybody could see through the crisis, how he reacted, what he would do. And it, they were like, that, that seems pretty good. That seems like exactly the kind of person that you would want to be in charge at a time like this. And look, I, I don't see how, if you're a huge fan of the president now, maybe you could see the press conferences and take comfort in those press conferences about the virus. But anyone with an objective look, can find the opposite of comfort in these press conferences. There, 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 there are people that are a calm in the storm, and then there, there is the storm itself. And these press conferences are the storm. So it's not, I, I think Vice President Biden needs to reestablish this idea that you could seek safety from the president not further chaos. Right. No, I, I think what's interesting about that, Austin, too, is I don't think people are getting any um, security or confidence out of these press conferences. But the other question is, since it will dominate at least the first two years of the next president's term, do you really want to be listening to him with his nonsense and his narcissism um, and his inconsistencies for another two years? I mean, I just so I'm curious, you know, you mentioned uh, Biden's orientation um, needs to be and naturally is workers. Trump's is Wall Street. Um, you know, you had left the administration, but you were still advising us in 2012. You probably remember when we would talk to voters about, you know, our record and our accomplishments and, and the, the economic case we wanted to make in the campaign. When we talked to them, swing voters, about the market coming back, it was not a reason to vote for the president. <laughs> you know, so it was not. It was something that was, uh, you know, a pretty quiet part of our messaging. Talk about that a little bit, because I do think that's one of Biden's strengths here. As you know, you and I have both sat in a lot of meetings with him, and he this is not propaganda. I mean, he always brings it back to the worker in Scranton, the worker in Wilmington. That's just his orientation. Trump's orientation clearly, pre this crisis and during this crisis, is all about Wall Street and the market. I mean, so so dig in a little bit more to that, because I, I think that's really valuable currency for uh, Joe Biden. Yeah, uh, look, I, f I feel like I feel that that's what you just said is accurate on both counts. You know, the for President Trump, when they when they ask him, you know, what you, what do we need to do for stimulus? He goes in his mind and says, oh, you know what we should do? We should reinstitute the tax deductibility of meals for executives and companies. That's how we could save restaurants. Okay, because that's. That's where his head goes. That's the life he lived. Now, with Vice President Biden, 
I think a new, not a window, but like a, a new channel has also opened. He's always been about workers. I think now, if you look at some people who aren't working, okay, take retirees, older people are scared. And they should be scared. This thing has had devastating health consequences for older people. You've had the administration literally in their budget pushing cuts to Medicare, to Medicaid, and to Social Security programs, literally calling for them um, to be cut. And I think this, this space of the experience of ordinary folks and does the candidate get it? You know, do, do they, do they, are they able to understand the life experience and the tribulations that have faced ordinary people and now are going to be magnified because of this economic crisis and health crisis? I think that's a, that's a terrible vulnerability for President Trump. And I think it's a, that's a great strength for Joe Biden. And look, we can, you could get into some critique and, and it's fine. I'm going to have some debate about what policies Joe Biden is for. And he wasn't for Medicare for all. He was for Medicare as a choice. And who should be, and now they want to expand, lower the Medicare age to 60. Should it be 60? Should it be 58? Look, fine. We should have those discussions at a moment when those discussions are appropriate. Right now, on the fundamental level, we got to answer this question of whose approach to to the economy do you do you trust or rely on? And I kind of think Donald Trump has shown his colors. He's shown his signature move over and over. It's always the same. It's trillions of dollars of corporate tax cuts and me, 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 me. That's some combination of those two things underlies everything that they've done. And in a weird way, it's what's poisoned the response to this health crisis. Because the, the Trump administration wants to go find different times when the president said things that they say, oh, oh, who's ahead of the curve? He said that this was a big problem on you know March the 5th, and they find a soundbite. But everybody knows in their heart of hearts, the president didn't want to acknowledge and still doesn't want to acknowledge that this is a big problem. He wants to be able to go back and say, look at how great the economy is, and he doesn't want tests because the more the numbers show that we have a lot of cases, the more people say the U.S. hasn't managed this very well. So, they're, so they actively are of two minds at best, where some part of the government and, and the administration want to downplay the existence or the seriousness of this condition. And, and that is the same part of them that says the answer to this problem is to go back to the playbook of, well, let's just try to give tax cuts and benefits to these big corporations, and they will, they will bring us out of this. That's all we need to do. And I kind of think that's exactly the wrong prescription right now. And how you, 
how you go to take just the microcosm of healthcare for all. The Democrats in general, and Joe Biden in particular, have very much been about we need to expand healthcare coverage for all. And you've got a bunch of people whose healthcare is tied to their employer. We're having world record setting unemployment in the last three weeks. So a bunch of people are going to lose their health insurance. And the Trump administration's answer is we're not going to reopen the Obamacare exchanges. So we're not going to let those people go buy health care coverage in the system we have now. And we're going to still stay party to these lawsuits to try to blow up Obamacare. And I do think that this whole space of health care could, could be another good one for Joe Biden, even if it's not a, just about workers, if it's also about retirees and, and people not in the labor force. No. I mean, listen to you talk about this last night. If we can't win this election, shame on us because we have a lot of ammunition. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, and this really, I think, uh, came to life in our, the video our former boss put out yesterday. Um, I mean, it's clear that the central question most voters, uh, particularly swing voters, are going to be asking themselves is, who can I trust to dig us out of this crisis? So, you know, Joe Biden obviously was tasked with leading the Recovery Act. Um, which I think most voters believe, particularly with some distance, think was successful. So, um, you know, I think he's got remarkable assets in terms of making the case that, you know, Trump's a clown. Uh, it didn't have to be as bad as it was. It's not just Trump's response bad. It was like the reason we're here in large part is because he was in denial. He's a narcissist. Uh, and, you know, I live in the Bay Area. I mean, if, if Trump had taken this as seriously as Bay Area officials, you know, we'd have a lot less death and a lot less job loss. So, I mean, you can make the case. But I'm curious when Joe Biden talks about this and listen, I led the Recovery Act on behalf of President Obama and it worked. But it seems to me it's always more credible when you say, but, you know, we learned some lessons from that. There's some things we would have done differently or I'm going to, you know, take forward. What 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 would be your soundbite on that? Doesn't have to be an elevator pitch like you know, he says, I let it, you know, we, I know he'll say we focused on the middle class. We focused on workers. We helped build a green economy, all things that are super impactful. But from, from a credibility standpoint, where do you think he should say, but there's some things either we, we did, didn't do enough of, or we did wrong, or I, or I've learned from that will inform the way I approach this as president. Mm, that's super important. Um, I would say that he could, emphasize some of the lessons coming out of that um, stimulus that there especially on the infrastructure side it was just what it took way longer than than we had previously anticipated there were some regulatory hurdles there were some coordination issues with with different states um, and maybe he, he Maybe he could find some common ground with with Republicans even on on that to to enable if there is some big infrastructure push doesn't necessarily have to come in the CARES Act but if they're if they have a push on upgrading infrastructure as part of the of one of these rounds I I think that some humility about the ability to get that type of of investment out the door, I think it would be good. And hopefully they did learn those the lessons that came from that. I think there's some positive lessons though, too, that he could say, I did it. And here are some of the things that we did that we learned to do as that was going along that were important. There weren't any earmarks. There was very clear governance and accountability. 
Okay, so you could go on in real time, and believe me, you remember many of the president's opponents did go onto the website and you could look up project by project how much was spent, who did the money go to, where is it, is it out the door, how many jobs were associated with that. So we established that at the beginning. And that made life uncomfortable for us at different spots because people could look and say, well, this none of this stuff has been built yet. The money hasn't gone out the door. But the fact that we had it and that people could pressure us for that, that made that upped our own game. And I do think that's quite important when you think about stuff like this in dealing with this crisis, that accountability isn't just about good governance governance. It's also about the actual effectiveness of the of the project. If there's nobody watching, there's a high chance that the money just is going to get flushed down the toilet or stuck in somebody's something and they, they shouldn't have got the money. So I think that that he's got a he's got a good message to say on that part. I think he's also got an outstanding message that in several of the parts of the of the stimulus act they designed I'll, I'll call them incentive programs contests really for the states that they devolved it to the states to come up with ideas and with the race to the top they'd say we have a pot of money it's a generous pot of money that will go to any states that can improve education in the following ways. Give us your ideas. And the states jumping over. The states have balanced budget amendments. They really need the money. So they start jumping over themselves. We can reform education in those following ways. We could match your money with this other money that we got. And we actually were able to get substantially higher bangs for the buck in the stimulus because we structured it that way. And Joe Biden was absolutely at the center and on top of that. And we, we ought to be doing the same thing now. The fact that you looked where, where you are in California, or you look in New York or here in Illinois, in Washington, you've got governors who are acting quickly and being smart and forming regional compacts with other states. You, the fact that you see those exemplary governors makes me think that some part of the recovery package or packages associated with this crisis ought to open the door for that and give the states some some opportunity. And I think that's a lesson that Joe Biden, you know, almost singularly would be would be able to apply because because he was there when they did it the last time. Right. Those are great thoughts. And I actually think a lot of the people are going to decide this election either were too young to to live through that or don't remember that Joe Biden had that responsibility. So I, I think his stock is is not trading as high as it should in that regard. I think he's got great credibility. So Austin, thank you for all this. This has been very helpful. One last question. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, you are teaching virtually, um, as everyone is these days, to your students at the University of Chicago. Have you been able to pick up, I mean, what is their concern level? How worried are they about 
um, whether they're a senior or junior, maybe even younger, like what they're sailing into here. I'm just, I thought you might have an interesting perspective in terms of that demographic who, as we saw back in 2008 and 2009, you know, kids who are 20, 21, 22, so deeply impacted. Now folks in their thirties are going to go through their second economic shock, but you've got people who may be going through their first one and, and are entering the workforce, you know, in a much different fashion they, than they thought even just a couple of months ago. Yeah, God. I mean, you say, what a mess, you know, to have to, for the people who lived through the last one and then they'll live through it again, it's like, what a, what, what is happening? I will say, I teach the MBAs, um, and I was struck coming back from Washington the, after the last crisis, and I am struck now by the fundamental get after itism optimism of of our, I don't know if it's this, the University of Chicago MBA students or whatever, but they they have seemed, at least emotionally, to take in stride. I don't know that they necessarily like my online uh, teaching methods. I'm still trying to improve them to, to, to match the classroom, but they're, they're like, hey, if this is the world we live in, we're going to take on the world, and we're going to start the next Google, and we're going to, you know, we're we're going to really do it. And so it's it was it was a war- refreshing warmth when I came back from Washington to see that, and it just still makes me feel good to see that attitude among them now, because it, look, it is going to be okay. I, I was the other day I was I was uh, I was cooking dinner, and I have a very, very old cast iron pan that's almost 100 years old. And I was kind of thinking, this pan will live through a lot. You know, the Depression and World Wars and polio and and all the stuff. And, and, you know, we're still here. We're still cooking dinner. It's going to be okay. We have been through worse than, than what we're going through now. And as bad as this is, I do think the... The young people are what's going to save us. Young people are going to save this country. And I, I just feel bad that we've put them through two rounds of this. But, but, but I think we can fix it. Now, that said, the people my age and older, we got a bunch of friends who run small businesses or restaurants and stuff like that. And a lot of them, they don't know how they're they're, they don't know how they're going to make it, and they're they're trying they're out trying to get money from the SBA. They're trying to get from the CARES Act. They're they're sweating it, and and you can see why. I mean, this, we we have not seen anything like this. This is going to be worse even than it was in two thousand eight and going into two thousand nine when Obama took over, and that seemed unbelievably bad at the time. Yeah, we figured it was a once in a century thing, kind of like the Great Depression. Here we are. Back in a more severe. Well, um, I agree. There's so many people out there who, even before this crisis, were living on the edge. Um, you know, whether they were a small business owner or a worker, and, and this has exacerbated it. But I do agree with you. Those kids are going to be our source of hope and, and uh, optimism. And um, it's it's great that you know you have the same confidence in them that you did prior to this. And, and we all are counting on them. So, Austin, it was great to talk to you, David. I miss you, man. I miss seeing you every day. Me too, man. It was a pleasure of a lifetime to be in the foxhole with you. And stay safe in Chicago. You you said it was snowing today. Yeah, uh, you just don't don't rub it in. You know, it's a it's a nice it's a nice spring day here in Chicago. As I say, our spring is only fourteen days, 
and they're not in a row. It's <laughs> 14 random days, and you, you <laughs> add them together. I miss Chicago. Such an amazing place. All right, well, stay safe in Hyde Park, Austin. Well, I want to thank Austin for coming on. A great conversation, as I expected it to be. You know, some sources of optimism there in terms of our economic trajectory and some sources of concern, which is, I'm sure, what all of you are thinking about these days. So, um, And I thought some really good advice for the Biden campaign about how they ought to handle this going forward and confidence that if Joe Biden were to win this election, Austin had a unique seat to watch Joe Biden operate in 2009 and and 2010, uh, that he will uh, serve the country exceedingly well as someone who helps us dig out of this crisis. So thank you for tuning in this week and look forward to having you back on Campaign HQ next week. Thank you.